Welcome to Podcats. Hi. Hey, this is Dan. I'm EJ. Welcome back to Podcast. This is episode three, and we want to talk today about um, some of the previous attempts to make Cats into a movie and how it was eventually greenlit by Universal to become the movie that we know today. I can't believe it happened, honestly. It happened. Uh, the movie that we now know and maybe love um, exists, and it was a big budget Universal film. What was that budget again? Do you remember? A hundred million dollars. Million dollars. <laughs> Is that right? That's right. <laughs> I think at this point we're up to sixty-seven million globally. Uh, in that, that it's gross. That it's gross. Yeah. So we're not as far behind as we were. But I should point out that Universal. Uh, or whatever company owns Universal, I forget what it is, blamed Cats for its quarterly dip in profits from the final quarter of well, 2019. Well, I mean, I don't want to victim blame, but like it's its own fault, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely its own fault. I mean, it's a, it's a show from 1981. Like, why would it have, why would it allocate an $100 million budget Yeah, for a 30-year-old show? It's a wonderful question. Okay, and so I'm going to get to that. But first of all, I want to talk a little bit about um, the attempts to make cats in the past because it has been a project that has been floating around in Hollywood for a very long time. How long? How long? Well, the first time was the late 40s. We're talking like 1947, oh. 1948. Before the musical, um, Walt Disney approaches T.S. Eliot about turning Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats into a Disney movie. How, like, what state was the Disney studio in at that time? 47, 48. I, do you know? I don't know. You're more of a Disney person than I am. I am more of a Disney person. I'm trying to think what it would have made around that time. Um, yeah, I don't think it was in that great shape. That was pre-Alice in Wonderland. It was, like, well, it was post-Fantasia, because Fantasia's 1940. No, we're talking late 40s. yeah. So that's pre- oh, post-Fantasia. Yeah, it was post-Fantasia, and it was also after World War II, so Disney Studio was under contract with the government around that time. Um, okay. Uh, when it was, was... like, really suffering financially. Oh, really? Uh-huh. So maybe Disney wasn't doing so well? Like, they were looking for a new movie? Yeah, he was looking for the next top property. Okay. So, yeah, and so he approaches T.S. Eliot uh, thinking, you know, maybe, maybe this famous anti-Semite will give me the rights to his book. You know, I'm anti-Semitic. Maybe he is too. <laughs> we, I know, we know he is too. We know T.S. Eliot is. We actually, the historical record is not super firm on whether Walt Disney was. So uh, why do we think Walt? Why is it sort of common knowledge that Walt Disney was? It's not common. There's a lot of dispute. Over oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's it's the kind of thing where like some of his animators like who were Jewish say, uh, well, maybe he didn't like Jews so much. He's that like, he said a couple things. He was also like very passionately, um, anti-communist Walt okay. Disney. Um, like he led the, he, he like called for the McCarthy hearings. Basically. He was one of the powerful people in Hollywood who did. Oh, wow. A lot of the Jews in Hollywood, uh, especially the screenwriters were communist. So that's part of the link. Um, I mean, Walt Disney was definitely not a nice guy, but there is there actually does does seem to be more dispute over whether or not he was anti-Semitic. So okay, we have yeah, we have no concrete yeah. evidence about Walt Disney being anti-Semitic, but we do know T.S. Eliot was anti-Semitic, as we explored last <laughs> week. Yeah, his words um, are pretty clear. <laughs> we should say. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, he approaches T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot, as we maybe touched on last episode, 
adamantly refuses because he doesn't want his cats to be too pretty. Mm-hmm. He thinks of his cats as gritty. These are gritty cats. Like these are street cats. These are cats with many layers. He does not want some pretty Disney cats uh, jumping around, prancing around on screen. Mm-hmm. It's not what he wants. That's fair. Um, yeah, it is fair. So that's about as much as I could find out about that attempt to make it into a movie. Um, fast forward to 1981. As we began to talk about last time, Cats is a huge Broadway success. West End and Broadway. Right. And part of that is the fact that it appeals to both adults and children. Right. So Cats is something that you can um, go to as an adult and enjoy and something you can bring your kids to. Yeah, but that's not I mean, it doesn't seem like that was how it was intended entirely. Maybe. Maybe not. Um, well, you mean as a children's show? Yeah, yeah. Just judging from all of the comments that the development team made about how, like, these are, like, sexy street cats. You very well might be right. But the fact is it became a children's show. And so in 1980, 81, a certain 8-year-old eight, Tom Hooper is brought to Cats by his parents. Oh, no. <laughs> Tom Hooper, who goes on to direct the film, is brought to Cats. And he's fascinated by it. What did he like about it? He Okay, so this, this, is, this is what he says. He says he loves that the cats don't give a shit about you. But on this <laughs> special night, we're going to let you in on the secret. The sense of being an initiate in a secret world felt analogous to being led into the adult world for an evening. It was quite a sexy show. If they weren't cats, would you be taking an eight-year-old? That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. It's pretty weird. This is an interview that Hooper gave, I think, the night after the premiere, like maybe before the reviews had come out, but after people, the first people had seen it. So he thought it was like Fight Club, basically. He thought it was, He thought it was, as an eight-year-old, he felt like this is an adult world. Like this is, he could tell it was sexy. Mm-hmm. He was like, this is sexy. This is sort of an adult thing. And because they're cats, I'm allowed to be here. And that's cool. Oh, so it wasn't like I'm being led into the secret world of cats. It was like... No, it's that too. The show breaks the fourth wall. And I guess the movie also breaks the fourth wall. But the show breaks the fourth wall and basically says, like, you idiot humans, you don't know what a jellical cat is. We're Mm -hmm. we're doing this ritual and we're going to bring you in on it. Mm -hmm. So Cooper liked that and he liked that it was sexy. And as an eight-year-old, he could experience that. Okay. Um, which is interesting, and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit later when we talk when we discuss the reaction to the film about um, some of the reaction that the that the film was too horny, mm-hmm. that the cats were too sexy. Which I think is crazy, and I think that's really un- unwarranted because the show is horny. The show is right. so horny. Absolutely, an eight year old could tell that. Yeah, and if an, if eight year old Tom Cooper could tell, then like obviously it's a horny show. Yeah, so. It's a hit on the West End. Tom Hooper is, is there. It opens on Broadway. As we discussed a little bit last time, it's a huge success. The marketing is a, a, a genius sort of break from traditional Broadway marketing in that the posters don't have quotes from critics. They don't have like, New York Times says Cats is the best, the, most, the smartest musical of 1983 because the critics hated it. Mm-hmm. So it was just... The slogan now and forever, the poster with the cat eyes and those commercials that played 
endlessly on television when we were young with with uh, Mr. Mistopheles and the the cat's theme, as I would call it. So it's kind of like this very populist marketing approach, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of like, fuck you, Frank Rich. Like, we don't give a shit what you thought. Like, the audiences are going to decide. And yes. that's reflected in the marketing. Yes. And cool. it's determined that it works for kids and for adults. Even if it wasn't intended that way, the people, the producers, the business people, the people who are promoting it, the people who are making money off it, they are certainly taking note. This thing is working for kids. It's for the people. It's for the people. It's for, it's for the family. So it becomes a family show, and naturally, after a, a number of years go by, and it's not going away, um, there's some talk of turning it into an animated film. Who do you think wants to make it into an animated film? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so get this. Late 80s, possibly early 90s, maybe like 1990. We really were talking eight, late 80s. I get a tip that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Steven Spielberg are living in the same building. What? What? Good question. Okay, this is a, it's from an article I found about this. I, I, I only found this in one article, and so I had to do a little bit of sleuthing. Oh, my but God. Guess what I figured out? I what mean, building? Listen, Where? Listen. Which building? Oh, I was very shocked because I'm like, wait a minute. Angela Weber and Steven Spielberg live in apartments? That can't, that doesn't check out what, to me. What was it? Like Jerry Seinfeld's building? Like the Paris or something? Right. It doesn't check out to me. I don't get it. Of course, you know, I find out Angela Weber, even then, I'm pretty sure had multiple houses. Uh huh. And I'm thinking, like, okay, yeah, what was this? Turns out Angela Weber had a place in Trump Tower and Universal had bought an apartment in Trump Tower. For Steven Spielberg. I'm screaming. Yeah. I'm so screaming. So Andrew Lloyd Webber and Steven Spielberg are neighbors in Trump Tower. Holy shit. Neither of them, I don't think, were living there full time, but they, at least at some point, were neighbors in Trump Which Tower. Which Trump Tower? The Trump Tower. Midtown. Midtown. Whatever. The one that Trump lives in. So was Trump their neighbor? I, I would assume. I would assume he was... It's a good chance that he was their friend. Now, interestingly enough, I also found out that so Spielberg at least claims that he never lived there a lot. Like uh-huh. he never really spent time there. Um, and so when Hillary Clinton was campaigning for Senate, New York senator, uh, he often he was a big Clinton donor and often let her crash at his apartment in Trump Tower. Right. Yeah. No, I remember hearing that, that about Hillary Clinton. But so. So I'm actually not, I would not be surprised to hear that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Trump are friends because I know Andrew Lloyd Webber is a Thatcher supporter. Right. He's, 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 a, he's, a, he's a famous conservative. Yeah, sure. he's a famous and conservative. And member of the House of Lords. Uh, but Stephen Spielberg is not? He's not. Yeah. He's not. But look, I mean, a lot, of, rich. It a doesn't lot matter. of Democrats, rich Democrats were friends with Trump. Trump was a Democrat. I mean, a lot of rich and powerful people were friends with Trump before it was clear he was going to become a sociopathic leader. You know, I bet that if we called him right now and promised him like good, friendly press coverage in exchange for like answering this question of ours, if he was friends with Steven Spielberg and Andrew Lloyd Webber and introduced them, that he would go on the podcast. Trump? Yes. Okay. I don't want Trump on the podcast. Well, I kind of do. But I we just know. want him to answer that we one just question. Want him to answer the question. Did you introduce Listen, Steven Spielberg and Andrew Lloyd Webber? I couldn't. Okay. I couldn't find like. <laughs> Did it, you Google it? This was like no. I, this, no, I googled like this was. You googled some, Trump and Spielberg. Listen, and- there was one article in Forbes that said that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Steven Spielberg were neighbors in a building, and then the, I found out that. Both of them had at one point lived in Trump Tower. Andrew Lloyd Webber 
for a long time has had an apartment, maybe even still does, that he's, tr- he's tried to sell it a bunch of times over the years uh-huh. for increasingly ma- wild amounts of money. How much? I don't remember. A lot, a lot, a lot of money. Angela Weber is very rich. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg, I also know, had an apartment in Trump Tower that Universal bought for him. Okay. So I'm pretty sure this building they were neighbors in was Trump Tower. They became friendly. They were also, look. I, uh, I, need, to, I need to just get, I need to stay on this point for just one okay, second. I'm sure. sorry. Do you think Trump has seen cats? Do you think Trump likes cats? Because I, yes and yes is my. Uh, I would say probably yes. I hate to admit that I like anything that Trump likes. But yeah, I think that he has probably seen cats. And I bet he enjoyed it. How could he not? How could he not? Also, he likes things that are grand and over the top. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's kind of his vibe. Who, which song do you think he liked best? Um, I bet he liked Buster for Jones. No, he is Buster for Jones. That's why I think he liked it. He's a less charming Buster for Jones. Okay. What do I, you think he liked? I think he liked McCavity because of the slut cats. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, I, I can't do a Trump impression. I, I like those girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he probably did. He Very probably, talented girls. He also probably likes McCavity. He probably relates to McCavity. He does probably relate to McCavity. He's probably broken every human law. And defy the law of... Well, he can't, he's too fat to No, he's definitely didn't defy the law of gravity. Yeah. But the human laws, sure. He's probably broken most of them. Including incest. Yeah, definitely incest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so anyway. <laughs> okay. So that's one wild fact I found out. And so they're buddies. Spielberg and Android Weber are buddies. They both have a place in Trump Tower. And they're the most bankable names in movies and theater, respectively. Mm-hmm. Right? In the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. Also, what's happening in the late 80s is that Disney is making a huge comeback, mm-hmm. right? Their animated films, Beauty and the Beast, going into Aladdin, going into The Lion King. These are enormous films, mm-hmm. right? And so Spielberg is at the top of his game in terms of live action movies. Then he makes a movie in 19, 1988, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Have you seen it? No. Neither have I. Yes, of course I've seen it. Oh, you? I haven't. Yes, yeah, sorry. Let me stop it. Yes, I've seen it. Okay, you've seen it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so you know that it's a combination of animation and live action. Yes. Okay, so after that happens, Spielberg kind of thinks, man, I kind of, I really want to get into animation. Okay. He wants to get into animation. He's fascinated. He by has, it. didn't he? He did. He did. He did five all right. Right. So that's uh-huh. where I'm going. He opens up a new wing of his production co- company called Amblimation. Mm-hmm. Only for animated projects. Oh, and he did the Animaniacs. Yeah, I, for, I'm not totally sure that was Amblimation. I think it but was. He, I don't think it was, but oh. we can, someone fact check us, please. Um, <laughs> no, pa- don't. Pod- podcasts123 at gmail.com. <laughs> no, don't fact check us. <laughs> don't email podcasts123. <laughs> no, email, please email podcasts123. <laughs> we want to hear from you. So, um, you have, if you need advice. If you need advice, if you just want to chat, just email us. Uh, so, yeah. So, he starts this production company. And one of the first movies they make is Five Goes West, the sequel to American Tale. Steven Spielberg opens this production company, and actually it's based in London. Why? Um, I'm not totally sure. He bases it in London. Okay. And he decides, so he, he and Andrew Lloyd Webber were buddies. They promised to make something together. He says, guess what, Andrew? I want to make cats. 
and I want to make it into an animated film. And I want to make it maybe actually a combination live action and animation film. That's okay. So so if you've seen Ro- Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like there is a reason why it is combination live action and animation. Like it's built into the premise. Uh-huh. Like it's it's basically like this humans and cartoons live alongside each other in this fictional version of Los Angeles and like there are all these dynamics like that come into play there. So how would that have come into play for cats? Yeah. Okay. So good question. Basically what he was thinking was Uh he wanted to make, he didn't want real people in there. He just wanted to make, um, live action miniature sets of London and then have animated cats in the sets. Oh my God. That's so weird. Yeah, that's his original idea. Okay, that's a terrible idea. What's his next idea? Okay, so, well, that's his idea for a while. And so he's got his production team, Amblimation. He's got all these very, very talented animators and uh, movie developers trying to develop develop Cats uh, as an animated feature. And he decides he wants it to be dark. He wants it to be in London, and he wants it to take place after the Blitz. And so he has these he has these animators <laughs> he has these animators wander the streets of London looking for the literal trashiest like the the junkyards like kind of like you know the show of cats is, takes place in a junkyard and so he has these animators looking for the trashiest ugliest places in London and that's where he wants his cats the musical to take place Okay but after the blitz like- after the blitz the bombing so there would be like this political element. Uh, yeah, there would be a political element. Because this is at a point where like British people think that Hitler is going to wipe them off the face of the earth, right? In the midst of the war. I guess so. In, in the destruction, in the rubble. I can't fathom how fucked up that is. Yeah. Like and apocalyptic one. Okay, there's some concept art for that that oh, we have shit. from this. Do you want to see it? Yes, yes. I'm dying to see okay, it. Yes. Great. Okay, so here is one image uh, that the animator made of a destroyed London with cat posters on the walls. What do you think? That looks cool, honestly. It looks cool. I think that looks really cool. You know what it is? It's very um you ever see Fritz the Cat? No. So Fritz the Cat is this um, like 1970s cartoon. It's like very gritty. It was the first X-rated cartoon uh-huh. um, that Ralph Bakshi made. And it takes place in New York, like a very gritty New York. And uh-huh. that's exactly what it looks like. Okay. I could see that looking very cool. It does look kind of cool. I, I agree. I also think it looks kind of cool. I also think some of the illustrations for the cats looks pretty cool. Let me see the illustrations for the cats. That's Demeter. Wait, no. Yeah. That looks exactly like um, the Aristocats. Uh, yes, Marie yeah. from the Aristocats. That's just a yeah. ripoff. And here's McCavity. And that looks just—he looks like a character from Robin Hood, I think, right? Yeah, and he also looks like the Siamese cat from um, the Aristocats. Yes. So they—he—they they just checked out the Aristocats. Basically, they checked out the—they <laughs> checked out the Aristocats. I mean, they knew their history. They knew their history. But again, this is just early development. Okay, so at the same time as they're making these illustrations, someone's brought in to try to fix the plot, meaning make a plot. <laughs> right Who? so the, the producers the producers attempt to write a plot they're like it's they want it to be dark and they want some kind of a plot that would make sense as a movie um it doesn't really work so after six months of development they stop production what's the plot they come up with uh that we don't know so we'll never it was know. never made 
I mean, as I have said many times, I think that the plot of Cats is good. I think there is a plot. I think they did the best they could. The movie you're talking about or the... No, the show. The show. Oh, I agree. I think the show, the show is great. Okay, so that's 1991. Production's halted after six months. Three years later, Spielberg moves Amblimation to L.A. Okay, so they produce Savile Goes West. They produce a few other things. Um, some of them are, you know, moderately successful, but most of them aren't really that successful. Disney is still king of animation at this point, mm-hmm. as you remember, in the 90s. Yeah, and I also remember that Roger Rabbit was kind of like a failure. No, it was a huge hit. It was a failure for the studio. No, it was an enormous hit. It was the <laughs> highest grossing film of that year. And it was 1988, so you don't remember. It's not that I remember. <laughs> Look, the theme park, si- at least from the theme park side, and we can cut this if you want, because it's actually kind of a tangent. It's not really relevant at all. But the theme park sunk a lot of money into Roger Rabbit, and they never really made it back. Okay, so. but it was a hugely successful movie. Okay. Um, which was par- part of the reason that Spielberg wants to get into, am- into animation in the first okay. place. So, so Amblimation's a basic, like a failure next to Disney. Fa- yeah, he moves it to L.A. I'm sure he's living in L.A. at the time, mostly when he's not living in the Trump Tower. And <laughs> three years later, he picks up produc- production. Uh, guess what? They still want a story. <laughs> <laughs> so they hire Tom Stoppard to write the screenplay. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. Tom Stoppard is hired. And even he couldn't do it. Famed playwright, author of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, among other plays, the screenwriter of Shakespeare in Love. Tom Stoppard is hired to make Cats. And he gives it a try. He gives it a try. But here's the thing. Mm -hmm. The entire time, Andrew Lloyd Webber is insisting that the order of the song stay the same. Okay. Okay. So he doesn't problem there well he's not really sure he wants to change the plot i think and he was being insistent on the order of the songs being the same so they're had they're struggle. they're thinking okay look here's all these vignettes about cats we could make some kind of plot that would work in traditional three-act structure and it would work as a movie but we can't do it with this restriction that all these songs need to be in the same order why it was hard i don't know you try it I, I mean, look, I don't necessarily agree that that's the best choice artistically because not all of the songs are equally good and some of them are more disposable than others. But, I mean, why couldn't Tom Stoppard, of all people, make that work? He couldn't. <laughs> Tom Stoppard, one of the, a, a, brilliant write, a brilliant writer, a brilliant playwright, a brilliant screenwriter, could not make it work. They couldn't agree. Spielberg and the studio wanted it to be a certain way. Andrew Lloyd Webber wants it to be a different way. They both think that they know what the public wants, but they have a disagreement on what the public wants. They each have their own opinion. Okay. So creative differences. Creative differences. Mm-hmm. Okay. Amblimation is struggling. They put out this movie called Balto. Do you remember it? Yeah, I do. Okay, so it was well, about barely, a, but yeah. yeah. It was about a dog. I certainly didn't see it. And the reason we didn't see it is because Toy Story and Jumanji come out at the same time. Mm-hmm. So Pixar is, is on the market. I don't know what studio Jumanji was, but it was a pretty big hit. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams was still a pretty famous actor at the time, especially for children's movies, and it destroys Balto at the box office. Mm-hmm. So Amblimation struggling. The staff leave, uh, the main staff members of Amblimation leave, and they start DreamWorks. Also with Spielberg. They just basically, they, they bail on his animation company and like start sort of an adjacent or new uh, 
family entertainment company, DreamWorks. Wasn't DreamWorks around at that point? No, that's when DreamWorks started. And their first film was Prince of Egypt. The main talent at Amblimation go and work on Prince of Egypt. Okay. Okay. Spielberg still, still wants to give it a shot. But Why? he's he really thinks like he really he doesn't want to give up. He's at this point, this is 1997. He's still like really it, he this is like six years of trying to make this movie happen in some way or another between other projects. And it hasn't happened. He hires writers from Toy Story. He's like, listen, I'm going to get some talent. I'm going to hire some writers from Toy Story to work on it. And then Amblimation just completely closes because Balto was such a failure and the studio folds. Everyone goes to DreamWorks. No more Amblimation. Project's over. Universal buys the rights. Why? How did Universal buy the rights? Well, they had a relationship with Spielberg at the time. I mean, for a long time. They're the ones who bought him his Trump Tower apartment. Like, Universal always... I think even they were even distributing all the Amblimation films, as far mm-hmm. as I know. So, I don't know. At some point, they buy the rights. Did they acquire the rights as part of like a larger package deal? Because I know that happens a lot. Very possible. Because I can't foresee a situation in which they would have, even when Cats was such a big hit. Well, I don't, they distributed the 1998 direct-to-video version, They right? did. Yeah, so... So that's... We're talking 97 at this point, so that might have been why they acquired the rights in the first place. They might have had to acquire the rights to make the direct-to-video version. Okay, that makes some sense. Maybe. Just, this is my hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So, but basically, like, we've given up on the idea that, that they're going to make a film version, and they make... that At this point, is I assume... When Andrew Lloyd Webber and Universal or whoever decides to make the direct-to-video version, so is that sort of like second best option for them at this point? Uh, it seems like it. That certainly was never said, but it seems like that's the second best best option. Okay. Okay, so that's all we hear about a film version of Cats, besides the '98 version, which of course is successful, as we know, because. We've all seen it. I have a lot of friends who grew up on it. Taylor Swift grew up on it. A lot of people. Um, I watch are, it multiple times are, a day. Now. You do now, for sure. Um, I remember when it aired on PBS. It was a big deal. My parents were very judgy about it, but we watched it anyway. What'd they say about it? They said, This is trash. <laughs> they said, This sucks. Okay. So fast forward 15 years. Okay. Lame is the movie is a huge hit. Oh, a huge hit directed by Tom Hooper directed by Tom Hooper um I don't know what to say I didn't love the movie you didn't love the movie I did actually you did uh-huh really yeah I thought it was great okay well a lot of people did and it it was a huge hit it makes 440 million dollars at the box office <sighs> which is a lot it's too much as it's, much as I like the movie it's too much it's probably too much um but it was a huge success Tom Hooper directed it was Tom Hooper a musical guy? Was he known for that? No. He did. He was known for the King's Speech. So he wins the Oscar for that, right? Yes. And Hollywood's like, oh, Tom, please do more stuff for us. These- I, yeah. I think basically he has, at that point, he is able to make whatever he wants. But he wants to make Les Mis? It seems, I think he's a musical fan. Okay. All right. He wants to make Les Mis, and it's a huge hit. So all of a sudden, if this is 2012, Hollywood decides that um, that people want musicals. Okay. Okay. So, and if you look at the few years after that, we have musicals. I mean, La La Land 
Oh, yeah. We, um, right? That was Lionsgate. Fox releases Greatest Showman, which is um, critically panned, but then becomes a cult success. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of these things happen. We have the movie version of Into the Woods. Mm-hmm. We have a movie version of Last Five Years. This is all in response to Les Mis being a huge hit and making Universal a bunch of money. It's so stupid and narrow minded because those are all completely different movies. But they're the only thing they have in common is that they're musicals. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's how Hollywood thinks. That's how Hollywood thinks. Musicals, music like this musical made money. We want money. Look, they want money. Uh, yeah okay and look I, i'm you know i'm sure there's some kind of maybe there's some thought of old hollywood films were often musicals and they think that there's a room for that in hollywood do you think so i don't know i mean yeah Les Mis was a hit people like musicals certainly animated films are often musicals disney films are often musicals yeah but like I don't know. I I think it's just money, 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 money. You I'm know? sure. Of course. I think it's just them rubbing their fingers together like of Snidely course. Whiplash. Yeah. So that's 2012 that Les Mis comes out. In 2013, as early as that, Andrew Lloyd Webber says publicly that Universal is interested in making Cats again. Wow, that early. That early. He's like, he says it publicly. He says like, Where does he say Guess it? what? I think on his website or something, or something like that. Like, he just, he announces the world. Guess what? Like, Universal's poking their head around again. This film might happen. So what was his involvement with movies prior to Cats? Well, of course, we have the movie of Jesus Christ Superstar. Or was it Joseph. Joseph. Jesus Christ Superstar was made into a movie in the 70s. Right. Was uh, Joseph ever made into a movie? There was a direct-to-video version, I believe. I think that was the Donny Osmond version. Okay. But um, but Jesus Christ Superstar was actually made into a movie. Yes, but a long time ago. A long time ago. Um, of course, we have Evita with Madonna. Yes. And that, I did that lose money? I don't know. I, I would bet it didn't. I bet it did well, yeah. I bet it made money. I don't know if it did incredibly well, but it, I would think it made money. It won an Oscar. Yeah. Um, we have Phantom of the Opera, which did not do well. Mm-hmm. And was basically, everyone agreed was bad. I kind of liked it, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, even remember it. You honestly. don't remember it. With Emmy Rossum and uh, Gerard Butler. I remember Emmy Rossum was bad. That's what I remember of it. And Minnie Driver's in it, and she's good. Yes. She's yes. weirdly good in it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he has had success, some some success, some not success with his musicals being made into movies. So was so he wasn't hesitant at all about getting back into that game after Phantom? Look, he's so rich at this point. Mm-hmm. And even with Katz's failure, I'm sure it's only money for him. Mm-hmm. What's, what's he got to lose? And I mean, we can get more into this later, but in a later episode... I have a feeling Andrew Lloyd Webber was not terribly involved with the production of this movie. Yeah, I think you're right. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Which is interesting because, of course, in the 1998 version, he was very, very much involved. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like he didn't care. With it. It, it seems like he doesn't care at this point too much. He kind of just, he has a bunch of money. He just does his thing. And I would argue that was the case for the Phantom movie, too, if you, if I remember correctly. It's possible. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I remember it being very stylized. Look, I know that I went to a screening of the fan, not to brag, but I went to a, screen, <laughs> a screening of the Phantom movie when it came out and Andrew Lloyd Webber was there. So he must have cared enough to do some like promotion. Okay. So 
So he's he announces on his blog or whatever, like, hey, Universal is sniffing Universal around. Universal is sniffing around. It's still, mm-hmm. we wait three years and then we it's announced in 2016 that Cats indeed will be made and Tom Hooper will direct. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tom Hooper, who saw the movie at age eight and grew up with the original London cast album. Mm-hmm. You know, so like as ostensibly he's listening to the original London cast album after he sees the show. His parents probably bought it for him. He's he's listening to that for at least two years from age eight to ten before the American version is even out. But it ostensibly also means that his roots with cats are deep, that he like is a good choice to direct this. Uh, yeah, perhaps. Like, I mean, On you paper. would think like he look, he, su- he successfully directed a Hollywood musical in Les Mis and s- he loves cats. So this is the guy to do it. Yeah, I would think you would think. But here's the thing. Hooper has a very strong aesthetic and belief in the realism of musicals that maybe didn't do so well ad- in his adaptation of the story of cats. Oh, my God. I can't wait to talk about this. <laughs> So here's the deal. Hooper starts developing it. And actually, this is, this is one of his quotes about an animated film. Because mm-hmm. he talks about how it was almost made into an animated film. He says, Like all stories, it's just about cats. But none of these stories work without the big issues underneath. Elliot was writing as much about humans as cats. He was writing about humans through a feline prism. <laughs> Ultimately, why, why I wanted human cats, not actual cats was that if they'd been actual cats, it would have totally missed the point of the duality of the poetry. I have so much to say about this. Yeah, let's Uh, talk. Okay, so the first thing I have to say about it is, so the other option would have been that it would have been like a live-action remake with cats, like with The Lion King, or... Right. Well, there was the there was the original Spielberg version, which was that it's cats in the real world, but the cats themselves are animated. Right, which is in the trash. Right. Hooper doesn't like that because Uh Hooper believes that... Elliot was not writing about cats. He was writing about humans. Now, Andrew Lloyd Webber, as we know, does not believe that. Yeah. Because the famous story where Hal Prince hears Andrew Lloyd Webber, hears a few of the songs and, and insists, Andrew, Andrew, please tell me what this is. It's, it's a political commentary. Like, which character represents who in British politics? What does this mean? And Andrew Lloyd Webber says what? It's about cats. He says, Hal, it's about cats. <laughs> Right. So already we have a complete mismatch in vision, which is another reason I don't think Angela Weber was involved uh-huh. with this at all. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, that's a really good point. And also, like I should say, as I've mentioned on the pod before, mm-hmm. my son is a huge fan of cats. Yeah. And so over the weekend, I went to the library and I got him Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. And so I've read these poems in their original context to him. It's about cats. It's about cats. It's about cats. It's not yeah. about anything other this than was, cats. This was light verse. It was light verse <laughs> written for children and it's about cats. Yes, it's about, it's absolutely, I agree. I think it's about cats. Hooper doesn't. The duality of man and cats? We all, yeah. What does he say? What? He says, he, yeah, he says that um, it would have missed the point of the duality of the poetry. He was writing as much about humans as cats. He was writing about humans <laughs> through a feline prism. No. No, I agree. But that's really what Hooper thinks. That's truly what he believes. We also know about Hooper's aesthetic from Les Mis that he wants this music. His version of a musical is as real and as raw as possible. Remember, we had in Les Mis, he has these actors, some of whom are not trained singers, singing live on set. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. 
And we've got Anne Hathaway singing while she's crying mm-hmm. with snot she running down Oscar. her face. And she won an Oscar for it. So maybe his aesthetic worked for that musical. At least some people thought it worked. Mm-hmm. The Academy thought it worked. You thought it worked. You didn't think it I, did, I thought it worked. I mean, I, listen, I didn't see that movie more than once, but I did enjoy it when I watched it. I think I ran into you at the movie theater. Yeah, I was just going to say we saw it together <laughs> well, we as well. <laughs> well did it, is that the one where we ran into each other? No, we ran into each other at Great Gatsby. Yes, we planned to see this we together. We planned to see this one together. <laughs> On Christmas Eve, 2012. Yeah. Okay, so Hooper, 2016, he agrees to make this movie. Or it's announced that he will make this movie. And to his credit, so this is what he wants out of the movie. He wants the movie to really show the actors' performances. And he wants this movie to be about people as much as it's about cats. So there's no animation and he insists on having as much as possible actors' performances come through. Mm-hmm. So when Universal decides to make the movie again with Tom Hooper directing, Spielberg is still actually kept on as an executive producer. But wait, but he hasn't gotten... Nobody is talking about it. No one's talking about it at all, except for when you watch the movie, you can see in the opening credits, you see his name. But he's totally involved, and they even use some of the designs from the Amblimation um, development that happened in L.A. for inspiration for the design of the new version of Cats. Wait, show me show me the design again. Uh, yeah, because there's. I'll show you some images of the L.A. development of the animated version, which were a little bit... Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, maybe they abandoned the idea of the Blitz. It was a little bit brighter, a little bit more Hollywood. But you can see it looks a lot like... First of all... Oh, yeah, that look, looks exactly like it. Yeah, it looks very cool, and it also looks... Uh, it also looks like the movie. Yeah. I mean, maybe cooler than the movie, but yeah. What is that, like Trafalgar Square or something? I think that's right. Yeah, I don't know London very well, but I think perhaps. And so, yeah. like uh, Piccadilly Circus or something? I don't know. Spielberg is totally still involved and gave Hooper access to what he still had of his development. So he was like, Tom, let me... Let me show you these sketches. Yeah, listen, I'll, I'll produce. If this makes money, I'll get some money too. Or maybe he just got some money anyway. And let me show you what I've got already. That's so unfair that he's not getting any blame for this. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that later in the reaction, one of the reaction episodes. But yeah, he, Spielberg is not getting any flack for this. He's untouchable. But those sketches, I mean, they do look an awful lot like the, the set that they ended up using. Absolutely. It almost seems like they spent so much time developing the CGI and prosthetics that maybe they forgot to develop their own set and just used the what they like their own shitty version of what had been developed already. Wow, so Spielberg's thumbprint is all over this. Absolutely. Wow. And so we're calling you out, Spielberg. Come on the pod and defend yourself. <laughs> defend your honor. So he actually, to his credit, toys around with prosthetics and makeup for six months. He gets the best prosthetics people, I assume. He has a budget to really work on this thing. This must have been where a lot of the hundred million went. And just like Tom Hooper. Yeah, developing it and fucking around for six months. And, you know, he tries, he tests this out. He tests out prosthetics. So can you remind me a little bit about the Cats makeup in the actual stage musical version of Cats? Yeah. Um, It's cool. They have heavy makeup, but you can also see their expressions. You can also, like they have, it it blends very well with their fur that they sort of, I don't know how they do it, but they have wigs and they have like sometimes sideburns or fur uh, and they have makeup that makes them look very feline, but you can also definitely 
see the expressions on their face. Do they use prosthetics? No. Okay. So, but, so he wants to take it sort of to a level beyond the stage musical version. Yeah, because it's on film. Okay. That makes sense. He wants it to look more like cats, but he also really, really, really wants the performances, the face of the actor to come through. Okay, that all makes total sense. Yeah. So as this is in development, CGI technology is oh, developing God. at an incredibly rapid pace. Oh, So God. in 2016, these CGI technicians are telling him, what you want is not possible with computer. We can't preserve that level of detail. Um, it's not possible. So he's trying prosthetics. He's trying makeup. He's trying all this stuff. The CGI is telling him it's not possible, but then this technology is growing. They're saying, listen, Tom, it's po- first day today. Oh, it's possible. Maybe it'll cost you a lot of money. Then they're saying, oh, it's possible. And they're saying, oh, it's possible on this micro level. But I have a question. So prosthetics and makeup, there's a huge leap between that and what we see on the screen today. Yeah, but this is Tom Hooper's quote about it. It is literal. Lay- it is literally layering the fur on but being able to feather it with a level of finesse you couldn't do with physical makeup. So he convinces himself that makeup, prosthetics, it's not enough for him, but this new CGI technology is exactly what he needs to make them look like movie cats, but also maintain every nuance of their human performance. So he literally wants a combination of humans and cats. Like he wants to smush humans and cats together and have them result on... The actors on screen. So that you not for a second forget they're human because he thinks it's about humans. But he wants them to look like cats. Yeah, the show's called Cats. <laughs> this is not, does he not realize how insane this is though? He wants, he, no, <laughs> he doesn't. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. Yes. He wants to have his cat and have it be human. He wants to have his humans and have them be cats. Yes, which might explain why the cats have human hands. Why Judy Dench is wearing her wedding ring. Human feet. Sometimes they wear sneakers. He wants it all. But in the show, in the show, it's like there is no pretense that they are cats in the show. Right. Also true. You know, like there's no, you, these are human dancers. These are human actors. Like they might be moving like cats. They might be singing about being cats. But I would not say that there is any pretense in the makeup in in the costuming in even in the choreography there is no pretense that they are cats you know they're not leaping from their feet like up in the air you know well they are doing incredible dances but yeah they're not you don't think that there's a cat on stage of course no not for a second of course and so tom hooper wants you to think that there is a cat on screen well but a human it's a movie it's a movie, so there there are certain things that he is able to do that makes them look more like their actual cats, like leaping and, I don't know, the, I don't know, leaping certain dance moves or certain spins that look like they're almost inhuman. But he also wants the actors to sing live on set, like he did with Les Mis. So it's, it, it's completely CGI'd, the entire thing. Not for a second do you think it's not CGI'd, but the audio you were hearing, and I, I know, look, I know from listening that it's not all live, but a lot of it is live, which explains why some of it is out of tune and not well sung. Mm-hmm. And let, we can talk about this more next week. Sure. When um, we can talk about casting, yeah. Absolutely. So, and he, this is what he says. He says, the thing I'm most proud of is that you feel grounded watching it. It's not that fantastical. I don't understand what this guy wants. I don't understand. I'm... 
it doesn't sound like he has a vision. It doesn't sound like he has any consistency. It just sounds like he's like the guy that you date who like wants to stay over six nights out of seven nights a week, but also like say that he doesn't want a relationship, you know? Right. Like he wants the intimacy and the sex, but like he doesn't want the label of a relationship associated with it. Yeah. Like it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, he knows what he wants. It just seems, it just, I don't understand what that is. And maybe no one understands what that is. I don't think he knows what he wants. I think he knows what he wants. He wants it to be about something more than cats. And so he wants to constantly remind you that they're not cats. But it's also a movie. So he's able to let, to be sort of silly about it and let them do all the things that cats in real life could do. And that cats in real life can't do like magic. (laughs) I completely understand this. This makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. This, yeah. This makes this explains a lot of what we see. At on screen. least we know a little bit more where he's coming from. Yes, which is confusion. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> and hubris, like complete Hub- hubris. Yes, but I do think that to me it makes him more of a sympathetic figure. Oh, see, I'm I have the opposite. Interesting. I'm having the opposite reaction. Interesting. To me, it seems like he. This is a guy who hijacked something that worked uh-huh. uh, because of his own artistic vision, which wasn't even really an artistic vision, which was confused and clouded from the get-go. Yes. Okay. Well, it was not confused for him. <laughs> but just be- you know, Hitler thought he was... I, okay, I can't compare him to Hitler, but like... You it, can't compare him to Hitler. I can't compare him to Hitler. Like, I know we go really far on this podcast, but we're not going to go that far. <laughs> you know, we're not going to break that boundary. <laughs> I want to talk to him. On the podcast. Ugh, but then we're going to have to like edit this and be so much nicer. Yeah, you're right. Okay, never mind. We don't want to talk to you, Tom Hooper. But listen, I find you sympathetic. I think he just had his priorities in the wrong place. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Okay. Because here's a couple more quotes. Okay. Okay. We didn't really test the film because without visual effects, it might be quite misleading. So it was amazing to sit in the audience and see how it played. That's what he heard at the premiere. He didn't test the film. He didn't test the CGI because it wasn't complete. He was just convinced that once the CGI was complete, that's what it was going to be. And I, I, I want I wanted to read you a little bit more. After the trailer dropped, he says, The main thing I, I felt, if I had a comment on my own trailer, is I sometimes felt there was too much fur covering the actor's own faces. What it did for me was reconnect me with my original intention, which was to see the actors' faces. So my direction of travel after that was paring it down, simplifying it, making it purer in a sense. The trailer reaction was good because I thought, even if this reaction is exaggerated, hyperbolic, comedic, it's obviously riffing off something. So is it something I can learn from? I don't even understand what that... Can you explain what that means? I think what that means is that he's so convinced that the only thing he needs to do is make the CGI good enough that we can see the actor's performances. That, like it was, he he didn't take any of the criticism into account that it was creepy, that it was scary, that it was frightening, that this trailer was freaking people out, that it was disconcerting or uncanny. He all he heard was like, "Oh, you're right. I'm cut. There's too much fur in the face. We can't see the performance." All 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 he cared about was this human performance needs to come through. And even after the movie came out. He went and tried to fix CGI, thinking that that was the problem. So he thought the the quality of the film lived and died in in CGI. In CGI and specifically in 
this his idea of CGI being this perfect medium in which to translate a human performance into a cat body. So he was lazy and delusional as well. I don't think he was lazy because by all accounts, he worked day and night right. leading up to the movie and after the movie was released mm-hmm. to make this happen. He just wasn't working on the right thing. Delusional. Delu- perhaps delusional. Perhaps delusional. Um, and I'm not sure if... if how he, I wonder how he feels now. I don't think he's given any interviews since the movie came out. Well, come on the pod with, with Donald Trump. Come on the pod with Donald Trump. <laughs> Tom Hooper and Donald Trump round table. The two hate, most hated men in America they right now. Are. <laughs> so that's what I got. That, that's what I've got about how this... This was incredible. The attempts to make this film and how it was finally made and how it was made the way it was. This was this was incredible. Thank you for this. Thank you. So yeah, now I hope I hope that as a listener you understand a little bit more about how we got to where we are today in the Cats universe. Um, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you a little bit next time about the actual production of the film, what we know about it. I can't wait. I can't wait either. See you soon. On podcast.